Welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll take a look at the EFL Cup first leg results before discussing some of the big transfer stories in the upcoming Premier League action. We're joined by Alfie House for the Southern Daily Echo, who will talk us through Pyramid Pod Cup holder Southampton's 19-game unbeaten run before we preview the rest of the EFL action. And we're going to finish up with Lauro, who will talk us through Yeovil's 1-0 win versus Taunton to remain 13 points clear at the top of National League South. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Boys, we'll start with the EFL Cup. Uh, Tomo, Middlesbrough 1, Chelsea 0. Uh, loads of injuries for Middlesbrough, uh, but what a win for Michael Carrick. Yeah, and like you just said, even more impressive that um, they had loads of injuries going into the game. I think it was 9 or 10. Um, and then in the space of the first 20 minutes or 25 minutes, they had two players go off injured. Um so you think really they were there for the taking. And to be fair, Chelsea, obviously, they were the better team, really. Um, Cole Palmer had a hat full of chances in the first half. He probably should have scored. Um, and then when you don't score, and like we always say, you give the underdogs a bit of a chance. And um, obviously, Hayden Hackney, the local boy, I think he's been at, been at Middlesbrough since he was 10 years old. Um he pops up with a goal as a good good work from Isaiah Jones on the wing and and they get a really good result and it's a really impressive result. I think after about 60 minutes, they they kind of sat in and, and basically went for the 1-0 result. And Chelsea are the type of team who they're pretty what's the word I'm looking for? But then they're, they're not very good going forward, like as in in between the boxes. They're, they're quite good at, at creating chances, but not very good at finishing chances. So, and it was just a case of that, I guess, for for, for Chelsea. But really impressive for Middlesbrough. Um, you kind of hope for the Carabao Cup. It's 20 years since they um, last qualified for a final, and that was the Carabao Cup. And they won that day, and they won the trophy. So, if they can get to the final on the 20-year anniversary of that win, that would be good for them. Um, but... But Chelsea, Jesus Christ. I've I've watched Pochettino quite closely over obviously um over the last four or five months. And there's something he doesn't quite look or feel like the same manager he was while he was at Tottenham. It's almost like he's lost a bit of fire and he and he's almost accepting of what's happening. Um and he's not as demanding as he used to be. But maybe that's just me looking from the outside in. And obviously you look for things to poke holes in when they're not doing so well. But um, yeah, look, really impressive win for Middlesbrough. Just quickly, can either of you tell me who um, Middlesbrough beat in the final when they won the Carling Cup or the Wormington Cup, whatever it was called, 20 years ago? I just listened to that on um, Talk Sport this morning, but I've completely forgot. Tottenham? I've got Bolton in my head, but I'm actually um, just researching it now. To be honest, I've just thought... I think it is Bolton. Scoring, but it, it is Bolton, they won 2-1, one, yeah. It, talking of talk sport, though, you know, like, they like to be out there with, like, what they say and stuff. I was listening to talk sport on Tuesday night um, on my way back from Yeovil Taunton. Must have been the same night. And uh, Dean Saunders was on, and he was like, yeah, bad result for Middlesbrough. one nil's not enough. And I just thought, fucking hell, Dean. No wonder <laughs> it didn't last long at Doncaster and all the players... <laughs> Don't have a lot of good things to say, but yeah, nice guy. But Jesus Christ, but you'll have Borough. 
you'll have Borough fans who will be like, I'm not having that from Dean, ringing up and paying whatever the, the per minute fee is for talk yeah, sport. Yeah. So that's their business model. Um, yeah, just just on as well that game and on the, the winner, Hayden Hackney, um, you know, when when a championship player does does well like that, you just know the next couple of days he'll be linked with moves to the Prem. And, yeah. and I think he's been linked with Man City, Man United, Tottenham and Chelsea since he scored that goal. And I know he's only 21 and he plays for England under 21 as well. So obviously he's very good. And I think Michael Carrick has said in, in, in an interview that they want to keep him um, until at least the end of the season. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how he gets on, I suppose, as a local boy. And he's obviously done really well. Headline headline news, getting the winner against Chelsea. Yeah. And then the, the other tie guys um, was Liverpool 2, Fulham 1. So what's quite nice is both ties are alive. Uh, it could have been a whole lot better for Fulham, though, Tomo. Obviously, go 1-0 up. Uh, Willian scored. Um, Liverpool kind of missing a couple chances. But Fulham really dangerous on the counter attack, obviously without uh, Salah and Trent as well, a bit weaker than the normal. And I mean, Bobby Cordova Reed has got to square that Annie at one nil because that that's two nil and probably uh, a victory at uh, Anfield and going back to Craven Cottage and bang favourites to go through then. Yeah, I would, I would say that game really is the story of Liverpool season. Like they've not really hit the ground running, gone gone behind. And then the team missed a couple of chances to go two ahead and Liverpool then inevitably fight back. And um, I thought it was quite impressive from, from Liverpool in the second half, really, because they were really bad in that first half. And like you said, they should have probably been two or three nil um, behind. And that would have made things really interesting if if Fulham could have gone back to Craven Cottage with a and nicked a win at Anfield. But... The difference, I suppose, in the two teams would be Fulham brought on Bobby D, D Cordova Reed and Liverpool then bring on Darwin Nunes. And I know he's not hit the ground running, I guess, um, since he's joined from Benfica, but he's still a 90, 90 million pound striker. And obviously he comes on. I think he got two assists. Um, yeah, he squared it to Gakpo as well. He came on as well. He was obviously a big money signing. So they've they've got that firepower even without Salah yeah, Trent. Exactly. But and and it's all I would say as well, it's a bit of a story of Fulham season because we spoke a lot about them not having Mitrovic and I, and and Raul Jimenez has obviously chipped in with a couple of goals lately, but if they had like a, a lethal player, then they would have been two or three nil up and then you can never write off Liverpool ever, really. But obviously if they go to Craven Cottage with a two one lead instead of a two one um deficit, you'd probably make you definitely make it a 50-50 game. Now it's like 75-25. Yeah, I think Marco Silva, before the game, if you offered him only a one-goal deficit and get it back to Craven Cottage for a, a one-legged tie, he might have taken it. But an hour into that game, um, it was just before the um, Bobby Reed chance to square it. There was one where he's played through and he just couldn't quite get the touch under control and it took him out a bit wide when he looked like he was through on goal and Liverpool looked like they were there for the counter. But to be honest, come the end, I think, um, Marco Silva probably uh, was just glad that Liverpool didn't go on and get a third and fourth because obviously the second goal came fairly quickly uh, and you know what it can be like at Anfield the ball sometimes just gets sucked in a bit so but both ties are live which is all you can ask for um, over a two-legged semi-final um, so yeah in a couple of weeks time we'll know who's going to be through to the, the final there
Boys, we move on and just look at some of the uh, main transfer stories in there. And um, a, a two-part deal here, um, boys. The first part is Dragusin from Genoa going to Spurs. So, Tomo, just get a bit on that deal. Um, and I guess where you see him uh, in that start in 11, if you do think he's going to start in 11. And then, Laurie, Jed Spencer's gone the other way back to Genoa, just um, kind of his time at Leeds and, and what that means for his career going out to Serie A now. Yeah, so I'll touch on um, Raju Dragasin. I'll obviously admit it right now, I've never seen him play, but I've obviously done a little bit of reading up on him. Um, and I guess it's a good bit of business from Genoa because they bought him in the summer for 5.5 million euros. And now he's gone to Tottenham six months later for 30 million euros. But he's a 21-year-old. He's, he's usually deployed as a right-back, but can play centre-half. Um, and look, he, mu he must be really... Um, highly thought of because Bayern Munich tried to hijack the deal um, late doors. Napoli were in, in for him as well. And um, it was interesting because obviously Tottenham got the deal over the line, but his agent released this weird statement overnight where he was like, he basically admitted that they were shocked that they, they rejected Bayern and they can't believe what they've done. <laughs> and even today he said that, um, that, He's already done that whole, oh, his dream is to play for Barcelona or Real Madrid. So it feels like they've obviously got, he's got big ambitions as a um, defender to to play for Tottenham for three or four years and then go on to bigger and better things. Um, but look, it's, it's needs must for Tottenham. Like we've spoke a lot about, well, I guess having um, Ben Davies as a centre-half cover is not really ideal. And obviously the right-back... Um, whose name escapes me right now, but he's played um, centre-half alongside Ben Davies a couple of times. Romero's out injured. Van der Ven's coming back. So they definitely need a centre-back in. So it'll be interesting to see um, how quickly he settles into the team if he if he sort of cements his, his place um, straight away. Is that Emerson Royale's name you forgot there? Yeah, Emerson yeah, Royale. I think yeah. it was Emerson Royale's name. Sorry, Emerson. He's a character as well. I'm surprised at that. Um, what did you see, say the price was they've paid for Dragusin? Um, 30 million euros. Don't you think that's weird? Like, I know you say it's good business because they only bought him for, for four or whatever, but that seems cheap now for a, a top-level player who's going to go and probably start for Spurs. Yeah, Is it good I business think, or should they be I getting think number, I think a number of clubs probably picked up on that as well because Bayern Munich tried to hijack the deal. Um and then I think a few clubs might have looked at that and thought, actually, if this guy's yeah. going to be a top-level centre-half, we can get him in for, what's that, 25 million sterling? Yeah, I'll have a bit of that. But Genoa probably thought we've had him six months, we're making five times on him. Um, yeah, but Laura, Jed, Jed Spence going in the other direction on loan. Um, it's not really worked out for him, has he, since that uh, Where Are My Manners tweet, smoking a cigar to Neil Warnock? No, and sometimes you can't, read into everything you see on social media but I think everyone got a certain impression from that post didn't they and I think it's turned out to be pretty much bang on um, Conte obviously wasn't having him at Spurs but to be fair that was a big move for him to jump up he, he only went to Forest in the first place because Warnock didn't start him at Borough I think he preferred Isaiah Jones or whoever at the time anyway he's coming to Leeds this season he was injured for a lot of it but it was Daniel Farker that sent him back he wasn't recalled we terminated the loan at Leeds and I think reading between the lines and seeing what people are saying over social media and stuff, I think it was 
training attitude, all the sort of things that we were worried might be a, a slight concern when it comes to Jed Spence, who's obviously got talent, um, but that only gets you so far. And, and then obviously the sort of um, application and the, the way that you act within a football club matters. So maybe sending them abroad to pick up some experience out there in a different kind of culture and a different environment away from maybe English cities will do them good. Um, obviously, I'm only speculating here, but reading between the lines, it feels like he's been a little bit of a problem player in terms of his attitude in and around the clubs at the moment and maybe getting away will be a decent move for him. But he's a good player on his day, so I expect for Genoa, uh, that's going to be a good signing. Yeah, and then just another uh, piece of business involving um, a couple of those clubs. So Eric Dyer to Bayern Munich. Must admit that wasn't on uh, on my radar before the transfer window, and I doubt on many people's. But um, the Bayern Munich manager has said that you know buzzing to get him in. Spoke about him as a centre back who's played for England, played in the Premier League, can play six. But are we thinking that that's going to be back up for? Uh, Upper Meccano and Kim Min Jae and just a, a, a kind of a squad player for Bayern Munich. Yeah, look, just quickly, a bit of breaking news on that because I, I I thought that was a bit weird of a career move for him because obviously he's not playing at Spurs and I thought if you sign like a four, four or five year deal at Bayern and it feels like you're probably not going to play, um, obviously he's quite, he can play defensive midfielder, centre-back, right-back or I think sometimes when they play three at the back, obviously he's perfect for that. Um but yeah, so it's just come out just then that he's going to sign an initial six-month contract and with an option of another year. So I feel like it's, for all parties, it's perfect because it's good for Bayern because obviously they're getting a player who plays multiple positions. He's an England international and um, he might be a touch too slow for Ange's style of play, but the Bundesliga... It's not as quick as the Premier League, so he might fit in perfectly. Also, another note, he's obviously Harry Kane's best mate, isn't he? So Harry Kane's obviously pushed this. Um, so it'll be good for him to help him settle. So if it, if it means that Harry Kane's happier and scores more goals, even more goals, then that's that's perfect. And it's obviously good for Dyer because, okay, he might not play all the games, but six months' time, it'll be a free agent if he doesn't play. And then he can then sort of world's your oyster. Um, and look... Maybe, maybe a Bundesliga, the Polka, the uh, German Cup and a Champions League winner as well. Well, exactly, so, exactly that. Yeah, you're right, exactly that. Lauro, just on Eric Dyer, um, we've spoken obviously at length about midfields for England, centre-backs for England. Do you think if he can go and get a run of games at Bayern Munich due to an injury or just starts to start in a back three or, or whatever that looks like, that he's got a chance to go into the Euros at all? No, I don't think Southgate's having him. Do you? No, no. And it, it depends. What I used to, I, do you know what? I used to really like Eric Dier in like the midfield position for Tottenham under Pochettino probably five or six years ago. But he's, I think the wheels have come off a little bit of his career recently. But what I will say is because of his, like you've just touched on his um, utility, he can play in lots of different positions. It's quite a, is it a small fee he's going for? Is it a fee at all? Yeah. It's, it's I think, not, I think I I've seen like... A couple like... Of, Three, three or four million, million euros. Yeah. yeah, three or four million. I think he's a good signing for any club in the world. Do you know what I mean? You always see the big clubs bring in like players that are maybe flattered to deceive, but because they can play central midfield or central um, 
defence and they've got experience at the top level. Eric Dyer would have played Champions League. He'd have played for England in major tournaments. He's a good player to have around. And if he's best mates with Harry Kane and he's going to make him play even better, then I expect they'll start every week for Bayern Munich because Harry Kane looks like the best player that's ever played in the Bundesliga at the moment. Yeah, and then um, another English player on the move to Germany as well, uh, Tomo. Jaden Sancho uh, gone back to loan on Dortmund. Bit of, been a pretty damning athletic art- article that's come out today that I know we've uh, both read. And he's he's back on social media and he said he's home type thing. So, um, yeah, it sounds like a good deal financially for United. Get some of that wage bill off. There's a fee that comes with it that's rising um, if they do well. But do you think Sancho... He's going to be playing for his Man United career there, or do you think this is a shop window to go on to sell him in the summer? Well, I guess that all depends on Eric Ten Hag's future. Um, I look as a United fan reading articles like that from um, from the Athletic. I'll just sort of make some of the key points brief. But yeah, he turns up late all the time. Um, the coaching staff and Eric Ten Hag about three or four months ago, all agreed with him that he would turn up to training one hour before the rest of the squad because he was turning up for late late that often. And apparently that worked for a couple of weeks. But then Sancho just went back to his old habits and started turning up late. And I think turning up late for things on um, a lot of occasions is probably one of the most disrespectful things you can do to your work colleagues. And... So as a Manchester United fan, I don't really want to see him back at United. It's clear that he's had these issues um, with his um, attitude, I guess, um, throughout his whole career. He even had it at Dortmund. Um, So, yeah, it's a difficult one. I I say good riddance, to be honest. He doesn't seem like a good egg at all. Um, But... Like you just said, it is a good deal for United in the sense that if he plays for Dortmund now for six months and starts playing just as well as he did for Dortmund last time out, then his value will increase and we'll be able to sell him for 40, 50 million in the summer. One other point as well, sorry to keep reverting back to England, but if he's going to go play out on the left in Dortmund in a season where no one is grabbing that left wing spot for England um by the bollocks if he has a really good half season at Dortmund do you think that he could fill that role not a chance he's a bad egg no, no way. he would just turn up for meetings late and he just there's no way if you look at um when Southgate when Mason Green was was coming through Southgate never picked him and and everyone was like well Mason Greenwood he, he looks like one of the best young players ever and it was clear that Southgate knew he was a bad egg and I think I think Southgate, he he values good eggs. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's a, he's he's big. <laughs> on, he's big. Yeah, he's uh he's big on culture. Um, I get that. I just he has been in Southgate squads. He's been at tournaments. Um, I think he played in the quarterfinal against Ukraine. I think if I remember rightly, but there was definitely a game that a couple of games he yeah. played in. He played in that quarterfinal against Ukraine, but we rest. We changed the. T- we were. We changed quite a lot in that game. And what I would say is he went to that tournament off the back of... Like, that was before he was at United, wasn't it? He was on the back of a Dortmund season where he was good and he still wasn't getting in the side. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't think Southgate fancies him, never has. And I'd be very, very surprised if he ever plays for England again while Southgate's the manager. Yeah, we've got so much, so many good players in those positions like Grealish, Rashford, Foden, um, even... Gordon. 
Yeah, Gordon, Madison. Um, so Owen. I, I, I just can't see it. Yeah, Jared Bowen, not to be missed. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Well, that's fine then. So neither Eric Dyer or Sancho are going to uh, the Euro. Sorry to break it to you both. Um, Tomo and Laura have ruled those both out. Boys, let's move on to the Premier League weekend action. Uh, going to start with Newcastle City. Lauro, obviously Newcastle not been in great form, but did win the derby against uh, Sunderland in convincing fashion. But for Man City, if reports are to be believed, you're going to have De Bruyne, Haaland and Doku all back in for them. Um, fancy Newcastle to get back to winning ways at home or think City will go to St. James's Park and get all three? Um... Lauro, before you answer, let me just hit you with a stat. Yeah, good. I needed some time anyway on that. Uh, Newcastle have only won one out of their last 32 league matches against Manchester City. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not asked about that, Tigo. You always come out of these like head-to-heads down the years. It's a completely different set of players under a different set of circumstances, isn't it? The last time they played at St. James's Park, I think, was that 3 all game last season. Yeah. Um, which was really good, wasn't it? And it sort of epitomised everything good about Newcastle over the last 18 months. Um yeah, I mean, Newcastle, we we talk time and time again about the atmosphere that they can create. They seem to get right up for the big game. So I think there'll be a match for Manchester City. I think they'll need to get their noses in front um, and try and hang on in that game a little bit. Because if City do have Haaland back, do have De Bruyne back, they're going to have a lot more threat up at the top half of the pitch than they've had in recent weeks. And it could end up being a little bit of a, a mismatch, really, with the form that Newcastle were in. OK, they they beat Sunderland the other day, but in the league, they've been in no form. They need a win, but I'm not sure it's going to come against Manchester City, who I think we all think are probably going to go on now onto a, a bit of a run now that they've got their best players back. So I'd love to see Newcastle win because I don't want to see what we've seen in the last few seasons of Man City just run away with it. At the same time, the realist in me says that that could be one of those 2 3 nil Man City wins that we all think are boring, but are very, very good and efficient. Yeah, what I will say about Newcastle is... They, they are definitely the club that definitely needs this winter break um, the most. Yeah. And actually, if you look at their style of play last year, it was so like like blood and guts and thunder and, and everything, hell for leather, 110%. And it feels like this year, with the injuries and the amount of games, they've not really been able to do it. Whereas against Sunderland, they had a whole week um, training to prepare. And okay, the levels of opposition are completely different. I get that, but their intensity was there again. And they, they've now got a week between that Sunderland game and the City game. So will their intensity be there again? And it is a massive game for them. And obviously the St. James's Park effect is a big thing. We always talk about it. So <laughs> I'm only sort of playing devil's advocate here, but I actually think City will win. <laughs> when you've got De Bruyne, Haaland and Doku coming back, it's difficult, isn't it, to to predict anything other than a City win. But but notes of um, positivity, I guess, for, for Newcastle going into it. it well, presumably, Newcastle are going to have two weeks off after this because yeah. they're playing Saturday. Then the following Saturday's a couple of other teams that aren't playing this week. That's the whole point of the winter break, isn't it? So they're going to have two weeks. A worry of mine would be if Newcastle go and get spanked badly against City now and then there's a two-week break, is that a bit of a opportune time for? Um... They're not going to sack him. 
Well, Eddie Howe to just get a phone call in Dubai and be like, thanks, Eddie, but this is probably where we're going to sever ties and try and bring a big name in, like Mourinho, yeah. whose contract's Mourinho, up in the Mourinho being spotted at airports, this, that and the other. Um, yeah, I think no it's best for, I think it would be best for Eddie Howe if he wins on Saturday, put it that way. Christ, he's got to win against the treble winners to save his job. I don't think you should have to. I'm just saying, if they lose 4-0... At home, and I know what Newcastle fans are like. Very, very good to get the atmosphere going. But sometimes, I mean, I'm already seeing our friends that are Newcastle fans sort of saying same old shit, even though they've been given a wonderful 18 months under Eddie Howe so far. It can turn quickly in football. We know that. And to be fair, they're ninth in the league, isn't they? Which yeah, they can drop really to eleventh if they. They can drop to well, eleventh this game week. So yeah, so I, I... Eddie Howe sat in the bottom half for the next two weeks. Ooh, I'm not sure I'd want to be in, but I don't think you should be sacked. That's just, and that's not me. That's just me, you know, fearing the worst. The only thing I would say is that we've done that throughout this season on Eddie Howe and asked those sort of questions. And normally come the next pod, they've picked up a really important three points. And so we might do the next pod and they've gone and uh, won at home to City. So... No, yeah. no, no. I, I don't... There hasn't... There can't have been enough... I know what you're saying... There can't have been enough important three points recently for them to be ninth. They're below Man United, for God's sake. I mean, if anything, that will tell you yeah. that you're in dire straits. Um, and the next one to go below would be Chelsea, who are absolutely all over the place. So that's what, actually, this is what, what I said on the I've said on previous pods and been shot down a bit is they finished bottom of their European group. And I know they've had recent losses, which have only cemented this point, but they they could soon be completely out of Europe and beneath. Man United and Chelsea and if reports are to be believed sailing very closely to profit and sustainability measures and might have to offload one of their stars this month be it uh, Isaac or Bruno Gamares or one of their other big names to to um, appease some of the financial constraints as well so not all uh, rosy at Newcastle No but I mean the fact that they finished bottom in their UEFA Champions League group is a I mean, the fact that we can even say that about Newcastle is testament to Eddie Howe and his staff. He deserves time. That's the point. But yeah, ninth in the Premier League below. I mean, I can't, I'm just looking at the table now. I can't believe West Ham are sixth. That's a, a conversation for another day, I guess. But yeah, it's a little bit, I actually think it's a little bit worse than it seems for Newcastle. They've been in the Champions League and had those good nights. But like you said, they are out of it now and they need to start looking up at getting in Europe at all at the moment. Yeah, well, no better way to. Uh to silence the uh, critics for Eddie Howe than going and beating Man City. So we'll see how that one goes. Tomo, Man United versus Tottenham. No Son, no Madison. Van der Ven and Romero both in fitness races. Tottenham play a really high line. Uh, and Ange's philosophy is we're going to keep doing it. And one thing that United have shown is that if a team defends high, we can kind of counter-attack at pace. Why am I sat really optimistic about United's chances on Sunday against Tottenham? Um, completely misplaced cool. optimism, I guess. But look, this is a really big game. If I look, if you have a look at the table, we're eight points behind Tottenham, who are in fifth. So if Tottenham comes to Old Trafford and beat us, that's twelve points off of Tottenham, and it feels like that's probably curtains for Man United's Champions League hopes. Um, I feel <laughs> like I feel like it's curtains anyway, Laura. I know you're laughing, so I don't feel feel like we've got a good chance anyway. But Obviously, it does feel like Man United's first six-pointer of the season where if we go and beat Tottenham, then it's only five points and then 
that's only two games difference and then you can get a bit of a momentum but it's impossible to predict Man United this year. You, I'll tell you what, the only thing you can predict is that we'll play poorly. But whether we win or lose is another thing. But I think we'll be poor. Yeah, I'm not sure it's curtains on the um, Champions League hopes. I think it's sort of full-size industrial metal shutters went down a long time ago <laughs> on that. And if you end up in any kind of Europe, even the Conference League, you'd be lucky. Uh, Having said that, I don't. Uh, they are eighth, United, and they're above the likes of Newcastle. They just seem to like they never seem to win. But I'm convinced they start on like ten points or something, United, because they never seem to be quite as in a, as much trouble as someone else. Because um, we win. It's because we, we win games that we're terrible in. So it yeah. feels it feels like it's a disaster when we've just like snuck a two one or or we beat Fulham one nil and we were absolutely awful. Bruno scored in the last minute. Obviously the Brentford game we were two nil down and then McTominay happened. So even though we we tend to play really badly most weeks, we do scratch around and get a couple of wins when we don't deserve them. Which is actually but, a good trait, probably the one yeah, positive. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Clip this up. Man United will finish top four this season in the Premier League. We've got Luke Shaw coming back. We've got Casemiro coming back. We've got Lissandro Martinez coming back. We've got Mason Mount coming back in. All of our players are coming back from injury. We're obviously a few points off it at the minute, but Villa's starting to drop pace. There's a clip for okay. you. Yeah, Man and United, also, Murph, just quickly, four. just quickly, we've got the Sir Jim Ratcliffe effect happening because he's, he's going to watch it at Old Trafford on on Sunday, so we'll get the new owner bounce. So, yeah. actually, we could win the lot. So, so, that Dave Brailsford's all about marginal gains, so he'll be writing 1% all around Carrington to make everyone try a bit harder. So, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's as full-blown second half of the season we're going on a title charge, but top four, 100%. Yeah, if Marcus just... is on is on so Dave Brailsford's um, brand new mattresses that he's going to bring in and he gets a good night's sleep finally, then all of a sudden you see Rashford's of last season. Let me just hold you to account there, Murph. <laughs> um, you have been quoted <laughs> off-air this week also as saying that Tottenham are going to win the league, if I'm not mistaken. So you've got Tottenham winning the league. You've got Man United in the top four. There's yeah. only a certain amount of spaces in that top four. Who's missing Man City, out? Arsenal? Man City second, Liverpool third. Man United get it on the final day of the season uh, because Arsenal have missed out and Arteta sacked in the summer. And Aston Villa, I'm assuming, are just going to plummet out of the sky. Yeah, starting with Everton. Starting with Everton away, which we're going to move on to next. So yeah, so you're gonna, just to just to confirm, you're going to claw back eleven point deficit on Aston Villa, yeah, and nine point deficit on Arsenal. And are you sticking with Tottenham winning the league? Then more City. I just thought Tottenham at thirty three to one with Madison, Van der Ven, Romero, the new sign in Werner, Son to come back from the Asia Cup with the amount of points that they're only behind, I think it's four points off top with the trouble they've had. I think 33 to one was uh, far too big at odds. So I had a score on it. Of the few listeners that we do have um, listening to this podcast, we have now lost them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did say when we started this podcast, I'm going to use it to ensure that what you say is held. Yeah. People are held to account and you'll get the credit. You'll get the credit if you're right on the very rare occasion that that happens, but you also will be held to account. 
um, if you just throw mud at the wall and see what sticks, because I won't stand for that. So let's wait and see. Clip that up, as you said, and then we'll have a look at the top four at the end of the season. And just to confirm, Murph has got Tottenham winning the league and Manchester United pipping Arsenal and Villa for fourth. Everton versus Villa. Villa's form has been slipping recently. Uh, they go to uh, Goodison Park, where I think Everton have been uh, fairly good this season. Tomo, come to you first there. My personal opinion is that Everton will pick up all three at home to Villa. But uh, what's your views on that game? Well, Everton have obviously lost um, three in a row in the league. Um, I know we spoke about that in the last podcast and a couple of those games are against high-level opposition, so they can be expected to be fair. So this is probably a, it is a big game for Everton because Luton play Burnley on Friday and if they win, they're Everton in the relegation zone. And all of a sudden, then that became that game becomes a little bit, a little bit more riding on it, I guess. Um, it's a difficult one to to call. Villa aren't the best away from home. Yeah, I can see, I can see where you're going with this. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tip the Toffees to win. Dominic Calvert Lewin's um, appeal was successful, so he'll be available, which is obviously a massive boost. They'll have Beto coming off the bench, which is a massive boost. So yeah, look. I'm I'm going with my Man United hat here and hoping that Everton do the job. And now we've definitely lost all followers because <laughs> our host has just told everyone that Villa haven't been in any sort of form. They've lost one game in two and a half months, which was against <laughs> Man United, which they were 2-0 up in, and they sit second in the league, the highest they've been in the Premier League probably ever. And for me, they will go and beat Everton quite comfortably. So let Mike. me just put that out there. My point with that is that they scraped past uh, Burnley, didn't they? Uh, Last-minute Dougie Louise penalty. They obviously threw it away at Old Trafford against Man United, which can happen, but thought they were really naive with their tactics there. Before that, they drew one all with Sheffield United. Again, I think they were uh, reliant on a 90-plus seven-minute uh, goal in that one. So they got past Brentford there before that. And yeah, look, before that, they had the Arsenal and the City wins, but... I don't think that they're in as great a form as what they have been. And I do think that going to Goodison Park is going to be a really tough game for them. Well, yeah, they did win 14 home games in a row before. It was impossible to always keep that form up. Um, Everton should be a tough game for them, but I do think sometimes it's levels. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this and have a look. My prediction is a Villa win, 2-0. Just a question, boys, as well. I think I know the answer to this, but we spoke at length about the FA Cup. I guess Everton in the in midweek will have a FA Cup replay to go round to the fourth round. Do you think that Sean Dyche would value three points over Villa over getting through to the next round of the FA Cup? Or do you think that um, he thinks that Everton will have plenty enough to stay up and would rather go through in the Cup if he had to choose? If he had to choose, he'd pick the, the win against Villa 100%. Yeah, the points for sure. Tomo, you just touched on uh, Burnley versus Luton there. Obviously, if Luton win, they can go out of the relegation. If Villa do go and uh, get something against Everton, which I, I must admit, I've apologised a few times now to Luton, but I really didn't see them being um, in such a, a strong position um, from where I thought they'd be. I didn't think they'd be on any points at all. Four points behind them are Burnley. We spoke about must-win games for company and whether his job's becoming a bit uh, under threat. And Laura, I think you touched on that the games that he needed to win were your Sheffield United, your Lutons, and having Luton at home, that's one that they've got to got to win, surely. Yeah, yeah. There's no more room for error now, is there? 
um, at that end of the table. We're coming into the business end of the season. Luton at home on paper should be the most winnable game of the season. And although Burnley have been pretty terrible this year, they are still only five points off safety, um, thanks to Everton's point deduction. And there's a couple of teams in a little bit of trouble. So at least one of those teams in the bottom three have got a good chance if they go on a run of staying up. It can still be Burnley. They shouldn't have a chance by this stage. 11 points is nowhere near good enough. But like you say, if they are to get out of trouble, it has to start with three points at home. They've had half the season now in the Premier League to get used to it. They've picked up very little and it needs to turn around very quickly. What I will say is a couple of their players, I think, have shown signs of playing very well recently and affecting games. That Odebert, who I don't think I've ever heard of before, seems to have sprung up and is causing problems everywhere. And they're scoring a few more goals now. So I actually expect them to beat Luton um, on Friday night. And listen, for for the Claret's sake, let's hope it's the catalyst for them to go on and um, string a run of results together. But yes, they are going to need it soon because after Christmas, time goes very quickly and the season will soon run away with you. And you'll be back in the championship if you don't start winning games. Yeah, Burnley's biggest thing this season has been their home form. They've lost nine out of ten games at home, which is shocking, really. And this time last year in the Championship, Burnley was 17 points ahead of Luton. And now Luton are four points ahead of them. Um, But that said, I do expect um, Vincent Company's men to get get over the line this game. Um, I think Luton drew to Bolton, didn't they, Um, in the FA Cup? So they've got a FA Cup replay coming as well. Um, I think they've got one or two Luton. I think one of the two of their wingers um, have gone to AFCON, which is obviously for a club of Luton's size and a squad of their size, obviously a bigger hit when you lose your players. Um, and like Laura says, I think Burnley, they have got a couple of good... Like Lyle Foster's back. He, he, he was out for a little bit with um, some mental health issues and he's back and he's really, really important to them because... Every every time he's played, he seems like a really good number nine, and obviously he's, he's pitched in with a couple of goals. So um, it's a big game, to be fair, massive game. Um, you feel like if Luton win that game, almost, I know it's so early on in the season, but you go to your biggest, I guess, your biggest relegation rivals. You go to their um, home ground, Turf Moor, on a Friday night and pick up three points to create a seven-point gap, that'd be massive for Luton. Um, so, yeah, look, yeah. interesting. They'll, then have to fo- they'll have to focus then, won't they, on pulling a Everton, a Brentford, a Palace, um, a Forest down into the, the kind of mire with them if we're cutting off Burnley and Sheffield United at that point. Yeah, well, Luton have got a game in hand on the teams below um, and Everton and then Forest and Palace a little bit further on. So if they can come out of this weekend with a win against Burnley... They will leapfrog Everton and Everton will have to beat Aston Villa to keep ahead of them and Luton will still have a game in hand. So Luton are actually in a half-decent position for Luton because everyone thought they would finish 20th this season pretty much and they could be out of the relegation zone with a game in hand by the end of this weekend. Yeah, great job Rob Edge is doing. I think they've also got the uh, catalyst of the Tom Lockyer incident as well, which is hopefully going to spur them forward as well. One of the Premier League game, guys, West London derby, uh, Chelsea versus uh, Fulham, both kind of languishing in mid-table at the minute, but um, both be looking for an important three points. Uh, right, guys, uh, delighted to have Alfie House join us now. Uh, Alfie's a senior Southampton uh, reporter for the Daily Echo. Uh, so obviously Saints have been 
holding the Pyramid Pod Cup now for 14 games, but on a uh, overall 19 game unbeaten run. So we thought best to get someone in uh, who knew the club inside out to tell us uh, a bit more. So Alfie, welcome to the pod, mate. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit more about your role and how you got into reporting on Saints? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I'm I'm from Somerset myself, um, but I moved to Somerset for university about five or six years ago, and then ended up covering Saints since 2021. So I go home and away every game, go to pre-season in Turkey this summer. Um, you know, talk to the owners, talk to the managers, stuff like that. But yeah, did sports journalism at uni and sort of um, just applied for a random job and got it. So it's a bit lucky, really. But it's a it's a great gig. Good stuff. And I guess last year then had the uh, heartbreak of covering the whole Premier League season. Yeah, I mean, when I first joined, I think. The, the direction that the club was looking to go was Europa League or Conference League. Um, and the first six months were brilliant. They scored loads of goals. Armando Bro on loan, Tio Livermento signed, absolute masterclass. But the second season, last season, um, was an absolute disaster from the start. You know, I think the management, you know, Raul Passano had been there for four or five years and that's such a long time in football. I think things were a little bit tired. Um, the investment was poor. They sold their uh, best defensive midfielder, Ori Romay, on uh, pretty much on deadline day and didn't replace him. Um, and ended up with Ainsley Maitland-Niles as the only sort of backup in that position. So they left themselves completely hamstrung. Um, and they took out an 80 million quid loan about five years ago. So they started paying back now. And um, it's all just sort of caught up with them at once. And two really bad managerial appointments, one worse than the other. And you know, in succession as well, to get one worse after Nathan Jones was really impressive work. Um, and ended up getting them relegated. So things are looking a lot better this season though. Yeah, mate. And so what we say sometimes on the pod, or we've mentioned it a couple of times, especially with Leicester and Southampton, is that sometimes getting relegated, it can, it's a really good opportunity to almost reset as a club and go again. And obviously Southampton have done that in the summer um, by picking Russell Martin. Um, and I just wanted to ask, first of all, what was your initial thoughts of the appointment and um, what were your expectations going into the season with him as your manager? Yeah, well, I spoke to I say I spoke to the ownership in May um, before anything was sort of appointed, and they said that the clear goal was to win the championship. So the first expectation was set out that they had to come in and win the league at least for the second. We you know in the championship to be fair, second and first, there's no differences there. No one really cares about the title; it's just about getting back up. Um, Russell Martin was a surprising name, I suppose. It was obvious because the club wanted to appoint somebody who, um, you know, his possession-based football. And I think Saints this season they've got the, the highest possession, the most pass completed, the best pass accuracy, all the things that I'm sure Russell Martin dreams about at night. Um, but I think what they've done really well is they picked a bloke who who's a fantastic chap. Um, first and foremost, somebody who cares about the people at the club, somebody who um, puts the players first, but then doesn't just discount his staff and the guys like us, the media who come in and all the people who work in the canteen and things like that. There's a a real unity from everybody. So I think they've done well with that regard. Um, but I thought, yeah, I felt initially it wasn't the most ambitious appointment in the world. You know, it was a, a championship manager who finished mid-table in four seasons with MK Dons and, and with Swansea. But as it happens, it's not all about, um, I suppose, winning games. I suppose you can't win with a, a hamstrung budget. They've now given him that budget, although they've still got financial fair play problems. He's got players that are good enough to, to compete in the championship and we're seeing the results. It Just following on from that, Alfie, I thought at the start of the season with Russell Martin, you mentioned there he hasn't actually, he's got a very good reputation of his sort of mm. possession-based football. He hasn't actually achieved a promotion yet with MK Dons or obviously Swansea. Southampton was his biggest job so far today. And I thought at the start of the season it would be a good appointment, but I thought he'd have to ride out some pressure at some point because because he's got such a, an extreme philosophy, it would take time to implement and get results off mm. the back of it. So although I don't think you had a massive period of games where results weren't going your way. There was a little start of the season problem where I think the Leicester game, you conceded quite a few goals and there was a little run after that before the Leeds game where things obviously turn around and you haven't lost since. 
Was there a lot of pressure on Russell Martin during that period around the club within the fans and maybe with the board, if you're talking um, with those yeah. kinds of people? Or was he always going to be given sort of six months or longer to to prolong, uh, yeah, no, to have a proper go at promotion with Southampton? There's definitely two separate answers to that one because um, in the boardroom and, and at the club, the answer is definitely not. There was no real pressure. I mean, obviously, the expectation was to improve because they've got the third biggest budget in the league um, and they were 15th in the division after those four defeats. But I spoke to actually Phil Parsons two days before the CEO at the club. Um, Phil Parsons two days before the Leeds game and he said to me then categorically that no you know there's no there's no no reason to panic right now and he was absolutely spot on however with the fans because you you're absolutely bang on about the sort of extreme style of play um he gets labels tippy tappy and stuff you know it's passing for the passing sake of it and you know they, they have these games sometimes where they have 81 percent possession but they have four shots on targets like that and people think well what's the point of having the ball if you're not shooting um, so even after they'd gone five or six, seven games unbeaten, when they drew one all with you know, somebody like Coventry, for example, you do still have that section of support that's like, oh, we're not going anywhere this manager. But now that it's been 18 league games and they're like two games off the club record for, since 1920, I think that people are completely unified now. But there definitely has been those patches. Yeah, I think there's always a section of the fans, isn't there, at any club that are never going to be happy. I mean, we're, I'm a Yeovil fan. We're top of the league by 13 points at the moment. You still get people that aren't happy with Mark Cooper, the manager, and the way he plays. That's always a part and parcel of it. But what about the recruitment? Because obviously, coming down from the championship, there's always a bit of a turnover of players. You lost the likes of Livramento, Lavia, Ward-Prowse, even Nathan Teller, who had a good season at Burnley last season. I thought he might be utilised by Southampton, but he's gone to Germany. Income, Ross Stewart, who's been injured, but Ryan Man- Manning's fo- followed the manager over. Taylor Harwood-Bellis, who obviously got promoted last season. Flynn Downs in the other direction from War Prowse. How have those players settled in and who stood out from the summer recruitment? And has it been good overall? I guess it has been if you've been on such a, a long unbeaten run. Yeah, I think like people are obviously gutted to lose War Prowse, especially having come from the academy, played for England. One, one free kick away from David Beckham's Premier League record and Saints just didn't give him the chances to get that um, last season at all, really. Um and I think, Tom, you may have said at the start of the podcast, it gives you that chance to sort of reset. Um, and, and people like Flynn Downs, Taylor Howard Bellis, they're probably not as good players as the people that have gone out, but they're really good for the championship. And, and Flynn Downs has been exceptional. And I think Taylor Howard Bellis, I mean, if Taylor Howard Bellis doesn't play for a Premier League team next season, then I'll be absolutely baffled. Um, Saints have a, a, an obligation to buy him for 20 million quid if they go up. But if they don't go up, there's no doubt that somebody will be buying him. So they're probably the two standouts. And yeah, the Ross Stewart one is... Um, the Ross Stewart one's a cursed tale because Saints have been trying to buy a striker for about six transfer windows now. They they nearly signed Cody Gakpo and lost him on deadline day. They nearly signed Gonzalo Ramos, um, Nicholas Jackson, people that are playing for massive clubs now and never got him over the line. They finally get their man, Ross Stewart, and he comes back in November and gets injured in his second game and now he's out for the rest of the season. So, you know, that you, you can't really account for that. Um, but I think supporters were a little bit frustrated because maybe they felt it was a risk. Um, he was already injured when they signed him and things like that. Um, so that one's maybe a little bit dodgy. Yeah, well, a lot less Drogba when he is back and firing will be a good mm. signing for you because he's good, Ross Stewart. But one player that has been firing for you this season, Adam Armstrong at Southampton. Um, I wanted to ask you, actually, because we, we talk on this pod quite a lot about a calibre of player that sort of falls into no man's land. And what I mean mm. by that is some players, particularly strikers, I, I find that can be too good for the championship and very, very prolific, but struggle when they make the step up to the Premier League. And maybe not so much recently, but within the last five, ten years, Dwight Gale, for instance, epitomises that. Yeah. Always scored back balls at West Brom, for instance, maybe even Newcastle, but never really got going going um, up to the Premier League. I look at Adam Armstrong and I think this season, a goal every other game, 
He's the highest assist maker in the championship as well, which is a really underrated asset for him, certainly from a neutral's point of view. And I just wonder, from someone's perspective that watches him every week, do you think that's a fair analysis, that he's too good for the championship and not good for the Prem? Or do you think he's got it in him to go on and become consistent goal scorer at the top level as well? Well, based on the statistics, I mean, he's got like, what, 50 goals and assists combined in his last two championship seasons, whereas he got four goals, I think, in the Premier League in two seasons. Um, I was there on his debut at Goodison Park when he scored a great volley, I think, 30 minutes into the game. Um, and the, the Saints fans were, were chanting, who the fuck is Danny Ings? And apologies if you need to sort of believe that. <laughs> um, but um, we're thinking, here he is. He's the replacement. We spent half the money of Danny Ings. And we've got we've got the man. And it just didn't work out. He ended up playing basically as a left wing back by the end of the Premier League era. Um Russell, I spoke to Russell Martin about this and I asked him that exact question, basically. Do you think he can cut it? And the answer that he gives is that um, he's in a system now it suits him more. But, I mean, obviously people are still going to be sceptical, aren't they? Because I mean, the, the numbers are so wildly different. Adam Armstrong's a lovely bloke, but he doesn't strike me as the most confident fella. So maybe there's an element of that as well. And I'm sure that um, in the championship, you probably get about 10 times as much time as you do in the box. Um, like against Leeds, for example, when he scored that brace. I'm pretty sure that in the Premier League, they'd have been, they'd have been stopped. Two fantastic goals. And then you obviously spoke about Adam Armstrong there another person I've seen in the news and I've seen you've even tweeted about it Alfie about not quite sure which way to go of it Che Adams sort of linked with potentially moving back up to the Premier League is there like a case that you should bank some money on him now do you think that he's someone who's important to keep in case there's an injury to Armstrong to like kind of push on with the promotion push what's your kind of thoughts around that one my personal opinion is that he's he might also fall into that no man's category really. He's like he's clearly too good for the championship. But even though he's only scored six goals this season, he hasn't actually played that many minutes. He's got more goals per minute than Adam Armstrong. Um, he he does have a massive impact, but he's going. He's not. You know, they offered him a contract in August. He hasn't signed it. Um, his agent, in my opinion, is always putting stuff into the press and stuff like that. It always seems like it's his name that's linked to Everton, linked to Wolves, linked to Fulham. And nothing ever happens. Um, so I think probably an amicable long-term split at the end of the season would be my choice. Um, there's no point selling them now because who are you going to get in the, in the championship for six million quid that's going to improve your team like Che Adams does when he's actually firing? Um, and he's a lovely lad as well. He's a really nice guy. Um, you know, maybe someone like Celtic or Rangers will offer him a pre-contract and sort of give him some, some airtime in Scotland as well. Yeah, indeed. Um I just want to quickly, but we'll go, come on to speak about kind of the January transfer window, expectations, hopes the rest of the season. But just want to drill down into this unbeaten run now. So obviously mm. we started the the cup uh, 14 games ago. And as I kind of spoke to you about uh, outside the pod, we were hoping it would sort of jump about and we could do a bit of a deep dive on each of the teams that held it. Um, we've got to the state now where we're needing Warsaw to try and win in the FA Cup just for it to change hands. But um, just a little bit on that 19-game unbeaten run, just uh, where the kind of turning point was for Southampton for that. And um, the, we've obviously spoke about Adam Armstrong, uh, Taylor Harlebellis, but any other kind of standout players that have uh, driven you forward on that run? Yeah, I would, I would credit Jan Bednarek with that as well. Jan Bednarek was somebody who left to go on loan to Aston Villa about 18 months ago. And in his interview with Aston Villa, he said, yeah, I'm really happy to be playing for a bigger club. Um, and everyone was like, well, you're never going to play a game for Saints again, obviously. But he came back last January and he's been he's been exceptional ever since, to be fair. Um, yeah, so they're on 18 games unbeaten now in the league, 19 more competitions. I think the longest ever run they've been on is 24 in the league. But that was in like 1896-97 when they were still called Southampton St. Mary's. Um, and the longest run since 1920 when they joined the Football League is in reach now. If they, they don't lose on Saturday, they will level that run. 
Um, they've they've limped over lines sometimes. Like let's be honest, they they have thumped Swansea sort of four or five nil, Blackburn four or five nil. They've beaten teams, but they've also limped over line. They've scored ninety fifth minute winners at Hull, ninety fifth minute winner at Millwall, ninety fifth minute equaliser um, uh, somewhere else. I can't remember off the top of my head. So they've not always been the most stylish in the way they've done it. Um, but that's what winning teams do, right? They get over the line. Um, and Gavin Bazuna as well. You know, Gavin Bazuna was somebody who I, like, I saw. I mean, I'm sure you saw statistics last season. He was the you know the worst keeper in Europe, and like let goals into his um, to his left so many times, fumble passes. But this season, the way Russell Martin's playing, he's so good with his feet from being at Man City since the age of like 14, wherever it was, that he's made a real difference. Yeah. Looking um, at the championship as a whole, Alfie, just quickly, because um, I'm a Leeds fan, and obviously we're in direct. Mm competition with Southampton this season, hoping to go up. And there's a lot of good teams in the championship. And obviously, like in any league, it's the consistent ones that go up. But there's a lot of teams that play brilliantly against Leeds and then they look at the table and they're <laughs> down the wrong end of it. I mean, Preston, for example, are in 14th at the moment. But they played us off the park the other day. Who's been the best team that you've seen this season and impressed you the most covering Southampton as an opposition? Uh, so that's a really good question. Actually, it wouldn't be Leeds, unfortunately. Leeds are terrible at St Mary's. Um, sorry to say, they really were poor. Um, it would have to be Leicester, right? Because they beat Saints four-one. But Ipswich Town, I would, I would give credit to as well. I know they've had a bit of a blip now. They've got four or five games they haven't won. But the way they set up at St Mary's was was very clear. It wasn't ten men behind the ball, but it was pragmatic. It was uh, obvious what they were trying to do. They capitalised on one mistake. They had no chance of the rest of the game, but they were comfortable. You know, they they, they played out of the last 25, 30 minutes with no questions at all. Um, and I was I thought that they're, they're going to be up there without a doubt. And I think they will win there, right? So it'll be Saints, Leicester, um, Leeds, and Ipswich will be the top four. It's just the order in which they finish. And right now, obviously, I think it will be Leicester, um, Leicester Saints, Leeds, then Ipswich. Yeah, so just just on from that, actually, because obviously um, covering Southampton on this run, the, the buzz around the place must be really positive at the minute. And obviously with Ipswich stumbling a little bit lately, it does feel like Southampton will be that second team um, at the end of the season. And so it does seem like a silly question to ask you what your expectations for Southampton are for the rest of the season, because I assume you'll answer with, well, promotion or nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, if they, I mean, they get promoted via the playoffs, I think nobody's complaining. Um, it's the best way to do it, obviously, but you can never guarantee it. The, the, the expectation is there because Leeds, Leicester and uh, Saints have the biggest budgets in the league by a mile, obviously, having come down last season. So the fact that Ipswich are even up there within contention is a, a real credit to um, to Kieran McKenna and, and unfortunately with Bristol City's arch and uh, nemesis, Mark Ashton, who did a, a a terrible job at City um, as their head of um, recruitment or director of football, wherever it was. And he's gone to Ipswich and he's pulled an absolute blinder, so fair play to him. Um, but I think mean, Russell Martin's been very clear that they, they need to get promoted. The problem is that we're doing this balancing act now in January where they've got a little bit of money to spend, but any money they do spend has to be recouped if they don't go up in, in, in the summer. So you're going to end up in a situation where people like Carl Walker Peters and stuff are going to definitely leave if you risk gambling it. So, I mean, I don't know what you guys would do, but as a director of football, how much do you sort of stick your, your neck on the line and say, let's bring in a five, £10 million pound player, try and push us over the line, knowing that's going to cost you in the summer if you if you don't get it done? Well, I guess there's... Oh, let me just jump cool. in now quickly. The thing is, it's hard to justify as a Southampton director of football to spend that money when you're on such a good run that's true because mm. you're playing so well and it feels mm. like everything's clicking everything's going in the right direction and to be honest obviously when you're on these runs you don't really see the hiccups coming you don't really see the blips coming they will eventually happen but it does feel like mm. Southampton are inevitably going to be that second team um like you say with the strength of the players Adam Armstrong Carl Walker-Peters like it go he goes yeah. under the radar a little bit, but he's, he, he's absolutely class for that level, yeah. isn't he? So, um, 
Yeah, look, I, I can't see Southampton not, not going up at the minute, but that's only because they're on such a good run. Mm. And to be honest, it does feel like, I know I'm being selfish here, but it feels like they know about the Pyramid Pod Cup and they're, <laughs> and they're playing out of their skins for it. They probably are. That's what they, yeah. Yeah. Most coveted prize in football right now, I've heard. Um, <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the um, the other thing is that like this club has been through so much torment for a couple of years, and I think it took like fans a lot of time to sort of switch their heads back around and get back into that good mood. And now that that's there, you don't want to lose it. But the, the issue that they have is when teams set up like ten men against the ball. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys saw the Norwich game on New Year's Day or saw anything about it, but I think Chris Sutton, who's obviously involved in Norwich, even wrote an article about it. He labelled it a disgrace the way that David Wagner's team set up at home because it was ten men behind the ball for seventy-five minutes, um, uh, and it was you know the most negative stuff I've ever seen. But they got a one-all draw. They got the result they came for. And Saints do have a bit of a weakness when it comes to breaking down teams like that. So, you know, if I was Danny Roll on Saturday, I would 100% be coming to St. Mary's, sacrificing whatever pride it is I have in my system and putting 10 men behind the board trying to get a result. Yeah, and I think that's often the Achilles heel of possession-based managers. Mm. There's possession for possession's sake, and then there's possession that actually results in goals and chances and winning football matches. But what I would say is... Leicester and Ipswich this year, I know Ipswich have faltered in the last few games, but they've gone off at such a pace that I think in most other championship seasons, Southampton and Leeds would probably be first and second yeah. now. And I don't quite mm. share the same vision that Southampton are definitely wrapping up second place now. I think Leeds will come back into it mm. and I think it'll actually be very close come the end of the season. But I think fair play to Russell Martin because, like I said, based on most other metrics of championship seasons, he'd probably guided Saints to the top of the league by now. And that's not an easy feat. When Michael Duff was at Swansea at the start of the season, he's obviously gone now. He said the hardest thing for him was undoing that kind of extreme philosophy. Mm. So Russell Martin implementing that on Southampton, getting the unbeaten run that he's been on is really, really good. And I'm, I'm just looking forward to the next few games for, um, for Southampton. You've got Sheffield Wednesday at home, I think, next. And then it's away at Swansea. And Russell Martin goes back to the Liberty Stadium, who are now under Luke Williams' Um, managerial prowess who's just come in from Notts County. I just wonder if that's the day that the Pyramid Pod Cup finally changes hands. Well, if it is, that'll be the day that um, it would have been the, the new record, the new Football League record for Saints uh, unbeaten. So, you know, that would be poetic, I think. And Luke Williams, but I think he played for Russell Martin at either MK Dons or with him at Warsaw or something like that as well. Um, he's, a, he's a scholar of very much the same style of football. So that would make complete sense. We, um, we've obviously just touched on Alfie about how kind of the the steer from the board at the start of the season was kind of promotion or nothing or going for the the title. But um, in a season where you've got Leicester and um, Laurie's just touched on there that any other season, they'd probably be top. But in a season where you've got Maresca at Leicester, you've got Daniel Fark at Leeds, probably told he needs to get promoted. You've now got Kieran McKenna who's fired Ipswich up there, Russell Martin at Southampton. If Saints were not to go up, but there's this clear philosophy and path with Russell Martin. Do you think they'd stick by him past the summer? Uh, yeah, obviously, I don't know, but I, I do think they would. But just because of everything that we've seen like on the pitch, it's fantastic. Off the pitch, it's even better. Um, I don't think they would be willing to to rip up what he's done at Staplewood training ground um, and just start again because everybody is on the same wavelength. Now there's total alignment. Um, the director of football is a you know, basically everyone at Saints is brand new. They, they, they chuck the old board in the bin. And they've got new people. We've got a new CEO, Phil Parsons, new director of football, Jason Wilcox from Man City, who plays the Russell Martin way. You know, Russell Martin plays the Man City way. He tries to. That's what it is. So there is complete alignment there. And they probably will look at that and think, well, there's nobody better right now who can actually do that. So even if they finish fourth and losing the playoff final or something, I don't think it'll be a case of panicking. There will be some changes at the club because they'll lose players like Carl Peters, who 
you know, I was being a bit harsh on Perry and G earlier because I joked, but I said that even Perry and G would have um, Cole Peters in his team this season. I couldn't believe that Sky Sports didn't have him in there, um, but they will lose guys like that if, if they don't grow up this season. Yeah, indeed. And then just finally, just looking ahead to the weekend. So we spoke off air about playing Sheffield Wednesday, obviously Danny Roll in there, a bit of history with the club, but mm. um, Laurie watched them against Hull recently and was really, really impressed with Sheffield Wednesday, considering they did look down and out, didn't they? Sort of at the start of December time. That now looks a slightly harder fixture than maybe what it was a month ago. I think, I'm sure every team thinks this, but it seems like every team Saints player all of a sudden in a run of form. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been really impressed by what they've done because we obviously went to Hillsborough on the opening day of the season and they only won 2-1, got over the line with a late winner. But the last 10 minutes of the game, um, they totally played off the park. And Zisco Munez's side, they made no real attempt to sort of come out and press Southampton when they were playing. Um, but what I've seen from Danny Rowe is that they will probably be aggressive. Um, they, they will be up for it. And I think what, they've got more points than any team in the championship other than Leicester and Saints since the start of December when they were in the bottom three. I mean, that is a remarkable run. I was speaking to a Sheffield Wednesday fan um, on our podcast about a week ago, and he was he he was uh, he was resigned to relegation about two weeks ago, and right now he thinks there's absolutely no chance they'll be in the bottom three. Um, so fair play to him; he's obviously done a, a good bit of work there. Yeah, unbelievable for them. Um, and just finally, if you can just make a promise to us that if uh, Southampton go on to win the Pyramid Pod Cup, you'll get us in to present it to Russell Martin and the boys, because uh, if they have, they definitely would have been promoted to the Prem, and I think it'll be a toss-up, as you say, between promotion medal and uh, Pyramid Pod Cup. But yeah, have you, have you got just... a physical trophy? Well, it's get it's in the works, Alfie. Yeah, I can hundred percent do that. Yeah, I'll tell it. I'll tell Russell about it this weekend. That would be great that. if you could. Yeah. But mate. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, first guest of the pod, actually. So, uh, awesome. yeah, great to have you on. And if uh, if Saints do go on to get promoted, we'll have you back in uh, to speak about the upcoming Premier League season. But cheers for coming. Nice one. Cheers, guys. Push that. Right. We've just heard from Alfie there. Obviously, Southampton uh, have got uh, Sheffield Wednesday this weekend, but we'll move on to the rest of the EFL action. Um, starting at half 12 on Saturday, there's Coventry versus Leicester, which is eighth versus first place. But um, third versus second in the form table. I didn't realise they were quite doing as well as they were, Lauro, but um, Mark Robbins obviously got Coventry going a bit. Every single year he seems to do that. They seem to be like in the relegation zone till about October. And then all of a sudden, I mean, we know that they got to the playoff final and got to penalties against Luton last season. And now they're two points behind, sorry, three points behind Sunderland in the championship. He's a wonderfully good championship manager, Mark Robbins. I don't know how he's still at Coventry. Although Coventry are a big club, to be fair, you, you feel like there's sort of bigger teams in and around that could do with a Mark Robbins to try and guide them forward towards the Premier League. So it'd be a tough game. The problem is um, Leicester are playing with complete freedom now. There's no pressure on their shoulders like there would have been at the start of the season to um, be at the top of the table. They can afford to lose like five games in a row and they'll still be top probably. So... Um, it's a dangerous beast, isn't it? A free-flowing Leicester with very little to care about, and uh, I don't really see Coventry getting anything out of the out of that game. But again, we talk about teams in the Premier League needing to start winning to stay up. Leicester are going to have to start losing to stay down. So hopefully yeah. that can happen at uh, the Rico. Yeah, I don't know if you boys heard actually. Um, Coventry's owner was on Talksport a couple of days ago, Doug King, and he spoke about. Um, the turnover of players in the summer, obviously, after that heartbreak of the playoff final loss. Um, and he basically said it's taken um, the manager and the club quite a long time, 
three or four months just to get used to that big turnover of players. Now the players have settled and they've got a, a good team again. Obviously, they're on, like you just said, Murph, they're on a really good run of form. Um, so it's difficult to predict Saturday 12.30 games. But, um, so I wouldn't rule out Coventry altogether, but just a sign of how strong English football is and how strong Leicester are. They've been linked this week with a Inter Milan midfielder in um, Stefano Sensi. So, okay, he's a squad player and he's not playing that often, but Inter are top of the Serie A and Leicester are about to go and get one of their midfielders. I saw a couple of um, championship fans saying that this is starting to make the championship a bit like uh, difficult for, for teams who haven't been up before to go up because of the parachute payment system, allowing the likes of Leicester to bring in a £20 million midfielder from Inter Milan to help what already looks like a foregone conclusion of going up automatically. Mm. Yeah, but Luton went up last season. There's no excuse if you get yeah, enough to get up. And just good point, Tombo turnover of players at Coventry in the summer they lost arguably the two best players in the whole of the championship last season and in, yeah. in Victor Gaiquez who went to Sport in Lisbon and, and Gus Hamer who went to Sheffield United so even better job for Mark Robbins to lose them two and still be in and amongst it with a team that probably hasn't got the funding that um, a lot of the other teams have fantastic that Victor Gaiquez I don't really know how to pronounce his last name but he's gone on to Sporting and, and scored a hat full of goals and he's been linked with like yeah. 50 60 million pound moves yeah. To Chelsea, so and he was playing at Coventry last year, and obviously scored a hatful of goals as well. But to lose that type of player, I think they brought in um, they brought in the Everton striker, didn't they? Um, yeah, and look, and they, there's levels in there between that. Yeah, I mean they, that was quite a lot of money. So I think like six or seven million they paid for him. But they also bought in a striker called Hadji Wright. If you watch Coventry, he's a really, really good player to watch. Real live wire. Um, entertaining player, but Guy Alcres, I think he's got a good agent. I think he knew a couple of moves to get a couple of percent off the deals. Do you know what I mean? Because he was clearly a Premier League player, Guy Alcres in the Championship, a couple of seasons or a season in sport in Lisbon, and then obviously they won't be able to fend off European top boys or even any Premier League club if they come in for him. So I'd like to see him back in the Premier. He's a really good striker, Guy Alcres. Yeah, I saw United linked to him as well as Chelsea. And you're probably right. You have that at Dortmund a bit, don't you? With um, like Jude Bellingham. Well, United linked with every striker in the world now. We we spoke, didn't we, Tomo, earlier in an early pod that United wouldn't be signing another top-level striker or a a premium-priced striker when we spent that on Hoyland. But looks like we're going to have to go back to the well uh, in the summer. So... But yeah, I have seen him linked and it follows that kind of Dortmund setup where Bellingham, Haaland, etc. go and almost use it as a bit of a stopgap because the agents can get them a move. And then it's like in a couple of years time, we'll get you another move. And then we'll, you know, probably for Haaland, the end goals to end up at like Real Madrid or or a, a club uh, like that. So that's the 12.30 game, Coventry Leicester. The half five game, if you're not watching the Newcastle City game, a equally important game for the championship, Ipswich versus Sunderland. Um, Tomo, second versus sixth. Obviously, Sunderland lost the derby. Ipswich beat Wimbledon uh, in the FA Cup, but they haven't won in five in the league. And we've spoken earlier with Alfie about Southampton and obviously Loro's lead, a game that Ipswich probably need to win and turn the uh, tide on if they're going to keep the pace at the top. Yeah, and they've struggled, haven't they, since, um, well, George Hurst, I guess their best striker, um, 
suffered a significant hamstring injury. So they've struggled to kind of replace him a little bit. Um, what I will say is, I, I, I was going to say, I didn't mention this in the last pod. I think I must have forgot about it. But watching Sunderland's against Newcastle, I was really interested to see how the likes of Joe Bellingham and Jack Clark would get on against Premier League opposition. And they disappointed. Now, and I didn't think they would, to be honest. I thought that they would thrive. Um, now, they're both young, really young players. And obviously, one game doesn't mean that you're, you're a bad High emotional game as well against Newcastle. If they were playing a Palace or a West Ham or something, there might have been less emotion in the game. They might have like shone a little bit more. Yeah, of course. And obviously, when you lose 3-0 to your, um, your neighbours, it like the heavy legs can look a little bit heavier, etc. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how they get on. Like you just said, Ipswich are on a bad run of form. So Sunderland will go there thinking they can get a good result. And I think Ipswich have drawn the last two games nil-nil. So they're struggling for goals. Um, so yeah, look, really interesting tie. If it wasn't for Newcastle, Man City, I'd love to have watched that. Laurie, that game, obviously, from a Leeds perspective, obviously looking for Ipswich to drop points, um, same as Saints fans. But a Sunderland side that would worry you uh, about automatic promotion or do you think their aspirations would be to to get a playoff place again? The latter. I think Sunderland are a really good bet for a playoff place if Mick Bill um, can find his managerial prowess again. Because, again, I'm not convinced that's a great appointment still. For Sunderland, I think they'd be far better off with Tony Mowbray, to be honest with you. But they've got some good players, and I'd like to see him in the playoffs. But we seem to be saying that about a lot of teams in the championship. There's only four that can get in there. As far as Leeds are concerned, um, it's all about Leeds. Do you know what I mean? Ipswich, I've seen enough now to think that they probably will fall away a little bit. Southampton aren't going to go unbeaten for the rest of the season. Leeds just need to win their fucking games. And to be honest with you, they've been pretty good at home this season and struggled a lot away. And I'm looking at the odds for this weekend and Cardiff are four to one at home to beat us. If I was a bluebird, I'd be all over that because we don't seem to be able to score the goals. And teams have, I said that on the last spot, I think, worked out that if they sit in that kind of low block against Leeds, we struggle with that kind of chaotic free flow and football that Daniel Parker tries to get his goals from. So hopefully we can engineer a way out of that and get three points. But that's a really tricky game for Leeds. So all about Leeds in terms of Leeds's. Um, trajectory this season need to start winning away from home and if we do get that form right I think we'll have that second automatic spot because Ipswich have shown enough now like I said to tell me that they're a very good side but maybe we'll run out of a little bit of steam One other fixture guys just talk on Birmingham versus Swansea wouldn't normally talk about a 20th place hosting 16th place but Tony Mowbray versus Luke Williams two manager changes that we've spoken uh, about recently uh, Luke Williams got off to winning ways against Morecambe in the cup. Obviously, the league a bit of a different beast. But you look down the championship, I, I couldn't believe to see Blackburn down in 17th. I thought they were right up there, but I suppose they probably were because they're only five points off of eighth. So um, that's the nature of the championship. But league debuts for both um, Mowbray and Williams at their clubs and both be looking to get off to winning starts. Um, and then if you just want one other TV fixture, if you want some Friday night football, you've got Hull versus Norwich. If you don't want to watch Burnley versus Luton, Hull in seventh place can actually go up to fifth uh, with a victory. And, and just, Norwich are on third. Go on, Tomo. And on Hull, Fabio Carvalho's just joined on loan from Liverpool, which is obviously a really exciting prospect because he was probably the championship, one of the championship's best players when he got promoted with Fulham. 
Um, since then, he's obviously not settled into Liverpool. Not a great loan spell at RB Leipzig at the first half of this season, but now he's at Hull and they've got a really good young player who every time I watch EFL highlights, that Jaden, it's hard to pronounce his second name, Philogene, um, he looks like an absolute baller. So I'm really excited to see Fabio Carvalho play alongside him because I think, and obviously we spoke a lot about Rossinha and his coaching credentials and he's doing a really good job. So exciting times for Hull. I yeah. think you can draw a comparison. Draw a comparison with Fabio Cavallio, with Jack Clark. When Leeds under Bielsa in the first season, Jack Clark had a brilliant season at like 18 years of age or whatever, maybe even younger. Um, Tottenham signed him for about 10 million. Didn't get in the side there. Had a few unsuccessful loans. Then had to find a home again in the Championship. Maybe that's the sort of thing that Cavallio needs to kickstart his career. And I'm really surprised that Hull have got him. I don't know if you saw the Hull announcement, but it was like a blind date thing. And it was like <laughs> Leeds and maybe even Southampton lining up yeah. to get him. He could have walked into any of the teams other than Leicester, maybe in the Championship, you'd have thought. Um, so a really good coup for Liam Rossini and, uh, and Hull City. And He'll be the, yeah, make it, them more dangerous. Liam Rossini will be the big reason because he's a really impressive coach, plays on the front foot, plays attacking football and... I can't. I can't see any other reason why he would pick Hull. To be honest, yeah. Well, than him. I mean, I can't imagine Fabio's been too disappointed speaking with Daniel Fark or Russell Martin. Both probably good man managers and both got their ethoses. But Rossini has said something, right? Whether whether it's well, I, I think we spoke off air, Laura. Whether, whether it's game time for Rossini guaranteed at Hull, whereas is he going to get in over James Somerville, Ruta, Piro? Bamford now coming back into it at Leeds and Southampton obviously strong going forward as well with Fraser Armstrong, etc. It might be that guaranteed game time that he's looking for that Hull have been able to offer him, but exciting signing for them. It will definitely be the guaranteed game time because I think, do you remember Jeff Stellings um, ran on on Gillette Soccer Saturday about, um, I think Hull and Middlesbrough were voted the worst towns to live in in the whole of the UK. And um, he started sticking up for the North. So it can't be it can't be Hull's sites and and all of that stuff. Although I haven't been to Hull, so I don't know if it is a shithole. I don't like the guaranteed game time one. That always worries me with the player. I think if you're Fabio Cavallio and you're good enough to go and play for Liverpool, it doesn't. If you're going to the Championship on loan, it shouldn't matter. You should be good yeah, enough to go and point. be good enough to play every week. Um, so I'm not overly. Um, enthused on that one and I always think that when I hear that about a player or you sort of read between the lines and think that's why someone's gone somewhere um, but nevertheless we know he's a quality player you're right with Fulham in that Mitrovic season where he scored 45 he was probably the second standout player for them that year and uh, yeah like we said great coup for a senior in Hull yeah, just, just a quick little bit of context before we move on. Obviously, this is coming off the back of a six-month loan at RB Leipzig, Laura, where he's barely kicked the ball so you know Liverpool are going to be basically saying you need to play. And obviously he need, he wants to play as well. So that guaranteed game time. I know you are right in saying that you should be confident enough to go into Leeds or Southampton or any club in the championship and get into the team. But obviously Liam Rossini has just gone, look, you're going to be our main man straight away. Boom. Fair point. Jaden Philogene, who um, you have been impressed with, Tomo, he's actually been out as well for the last month as well, injured. So probably a much needed um, body for Hull. But if they can get back him back and Carvalho playing together, then that will be uh, very exciting. 
Well, just to wrap up the rest of the EFL action, boys. So Portsmouth versus Leighton Orient, first versus 12th, which on the face of it would look like a home banker. But Orient are actually in much better form than Portsmouth. Portsmouth have been struggling in recent week and Leighton Orient have got 10 points from their last five. So potentially a bit of a, uh, a way upset there. Bolton versus Cheltenham. Again, Bolton right up there, Cheltenham right down there. And Bolton have got two games in hand on Portsmouth and will go top if they win them. But Cheltenham won versus Portsmouth recently. Thomas spoke on the last pod about how well Daryl Clark's doing and said that's their biggest win of the season, home to Portsmouth. If they go and win away at Bolton, uh, that will be even bigger. And that is second versus fourth in the form table as well. So it should be a good game. Um, and then third place, Peterborough, they host Charlton, which is third versus 13th. But Charlton have got Alfie May injured at the minute. So he's stuck on 15 goals and unable to help at the minute. So um, probably lead to a Peterborough victory there. Derby are playing Burton on Monday night football as well. Derby, obviously, they're now actually Bookie's favourites to go up automatically ahead of Portsmouth, Bolton and Peterborough. They've got the shortest odds, which we spoke about on the um, last pod. Whether they'll go on and win the league, I don't know. But the Bookies are having them to uh, go up automatically now. So they're favourites to win the league then? I only checked on the odds for promotion. They've got the shortest odds. So I'd imagine that would mean... They're top be... of that. They must be, they must be yeah. favourites to win the league. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously oh. Paul... This podcast is sponsored by Paul Warren. Yeah, it is. He, <laughs> to be fair, maybe we can get him on. He did that moment of truth, didn't he? So maybe we can get him on the old pyramid pods. Oh, I'd love um, to get Paul Warren on the show. That'd be class. You used to speak Russell to him that much correct, didn't you, Murph? Yeah, and I knew Warney a bit. I used to have a fiver on him uh, to score first for Yeovil. Uh, I never did, but 12 to 1 was always enticing. Um, <laughs> Burton, who they're playing, have got a new manager in, Martin Patterson, who was at Swansea with Michael Duff as their assistant uh, manager. Um, actually, I remember him from uh, footy manager Martin Patterson, used to be about the EFL um, and be a forward to sign on there. But I've also noticed as well that United on, have had on the bench a young striker called um, Joe Hugel in recent weeks, who's not managed to come on. Um, but apparently he's going uh, on loan to, uh, to Burton as well. So a new manager and a new striker uh, in the door. So maybe not... Um, a home banker for Derby. And uh, we got a uh, a friend of the uh, pod, Big Zim, who's a Burton fan, um, who was really excited about Martin Patterson and Joe Hugel coming in. So, um, yeah, good luck to, to those guys. Move on to League Two, boys. So, uh, Stockport versus Warsaw, first versus 13th. Uh, obviously, Southampton beat Warsaw 4-0 in the FA Cup, um, which is obviously levels to this. But Warsaw are actually top of the form chart in League Two. And Stockport haven't won in three now. So, again, what potentially was looking like a, a home banker on paper might not uh, be that. 17th place, Morecambe. They uh, they host second place, Mansfield. Mansfield lost their last game uh, at home to Crew while everyone else was playing in the FA Cup. They missed the chance to go top there. But um, I think Mansfield are now bookies' favourites to, uh, to win League Two. Third place, Wrexham hosts seventh place. Uh, Wimbledon, it was one all in the reverse fixture towards the start of the season. I don't know if Wimbledon have still got their striker at the minute. I think it's Al Hamadi, um, who's been linked with a January move. But if he's still there, obviously, they've always got a chance. Wrexham uh, go, are good going forward, but concede at the back. So um, would tip him to have a say in the game if he is still there. And fourth place, Barrow uh, hosts... 24th place Sutton so that does look like a home banker and Barrow are now actually only three points off the top I saw their manager doing all managers seem to do this at the minute that kind of three fist pump to the uh, stand after you've won a game but is it Pete Wildloro I saw for Barrow doing that 
Yeah, yeah, Pete Wilde. I'm surprised he's still at Barrow, to be honest with you. When you see a team like that, fourth in League Two, I mean, I don't know if you've seen Barrow's ground, but it leaves a lot to be desired. And they're obviously a very small football club up in a very sort of ostracised part of the country. Unbelievable. Um, but it, ju- it seems to be at the moment, like we've just seen it with like Burton as well and Plymouth. It's trendy to like sign a coach out of like someone's backroom staff at the moment. They, that seems to be all the rage and like that everyone's hoping to get the next Kieran McKenna. So it's almost like if you if you lose your job, go and be someone's assistant and look like you're doing something in the coaching and then maybe you get plucked. Um, yeah, but brilliant for Barrow. But I've got a question on League Two for you both. Um, speaking midweek, obviously Luke Williams has departed Notts County to go to Swansea. And we were talking about me and a friend. We were talking about Macaulay Langstaff, um, who's now the top scorer in League Two. Last season, he broke the National League all-time scorer record in the National League. He scored over 100 goals in the last four seasons, right? And an untrodden path, or a rarely trodden path, we've seen Jamie Vardy come out of non-league and and get to Premier League in England and stuff like that. Luke Williams has sort of been asked about taking Langstaff to Swansea in the Championship. If Langstaff was signed from Notts County tomorrow, how much money is he worth? About to turn twenty-seven. Well, it, to go, it's difficult to say because, like you just said, well, he's twenty-six, just about to turn twenty-seven. He's unproven at that level, and and I, I'm not sure how long he's got left on his contract. But say if he's got three years left on his contract, you've got to look at a couple million of you, maybe a million, two million. I draw the comparison to Vardy because he he didn't get to the Premier League until he was about 27, 28. He, I think he scored, he got 100 Premier League goals after the age of 30. Um, and that was a player that relied on his speed a lot as well. So there is longevity in players like this, especially who have had to come up through the leagues and, and do it the hard way. And he's not particularly old, about to turn 27. 100 goals in the last four seasons. Surely someone's going to take a punt on him soon. He knows yeah. where the back of the net is, and I just start... I think that could be. I couldn't picture whether it's half a million or is it five million. How, yeah, how much did um? I know Paul Mullen went on a free transfer from Cambridge. How much did Ollie Palmer cost at Wimbledon? He was banging in goals. I, I, I want to say that that was a million pounds that Wrexham had to pay for him, and Wrexham might have a tax a tax on him. But Macaulay Langstaff's younger than that. He's probably scored more goals than what Ollie Palmer has, especially consistently over a couple of years, and it's going to the championship. Vardy was, I think, a, a million, wasn't he, to Leicester? But that was a fair few number of years ago now. And yeah, for Notts County, if Notts County got aspirations to go back up, it's also who do you then go and replace him with? So yeah. if he's tied to a long-term contract, Notts County could just name a figure. They might go, right, you can have him, but it's going to cost you five mil or seven and a half mil. It's right, like, how yeah. badly do you want Macaulay Langstaff then? Yeah, and well... they, they, Swansea, might, Swansea might say, no, we're not paying that. But Notts County would be like, well, fine, we keep our... our record goal scorer and the guy who could potentially fire us up to League One. So, yeah. Um, well, I just, um, one. I know you boys know me and I love my documentaries and I just watched the first episode of Salford's documentary and in that, they you have a sit-down meeting with um, Nicky Butt, the Chief Scout, Paul Scholes and Ryan Giggs and it's in a January transfer window and they're, they're talking about strikers and basically they make it clear that at that level, you've got about 15 or 20 clubs in each league wanting a striker in January. Because if you're struggling, you need a striker to keep you safe. And if you're 
pushing for the promotion, you need a striker to get you over the line. So it's always a striker that clubs need. So Notts County will also have that premium when it comes to McCauley Langstaff. Um, yeah, look, I, I can't I can't see Swansea affording 7.5 million, but a couple of million, yeah, that seems more realistic. Say what would be interesting is if Wrexham got hold of what that fee was, if Swansea were trying to do a deal, obviously they've got the, the financial um, prowess that they've got. They watched Langstaff nearly, um, so well, outscored Mullen last season and doing it again this season, whether they'd then go, right, well, we'll pay that. We'll guarantee to go up then. They've no got chance. Steve they've Fletcher got, and they've got Fletcher Palmer. Palmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no they chance. just start to offload those guys. Paul Mullen can't be getting any younger. I imagine he's um, older he's just, than McCauley He's just Langstaff. signed a new contract. <laughs> Yeah, but, but I'm just saying, Wrexham might be like, well, we'll we'll certainly have Langstaff if he's going. Um, but no, interesting point, Laurie. What what do you think that he will move? Do you think that there'll be reasonable grounds for someone to take him on in in January and pay the money that not swamp for him? I definitely think there's reasonable grounds to take him on because he's proven it consistently now. And sometimes you can beat teams. You can be guilty of thinking, oh, he's nearly 27. He's nearly done. He ain't nearly done. Do you know what I mean? And Langstaff ain't a player that relies on his pace necessarily. He's probably got like eight years left of bagging goals. So I think a championship club will take him, but maybe in the summer. Um, and like Teague, I've said, I'm not sure what's left on his deal. But I think Luke Williams has come out and said, look, I want to see Knox County go up and Langstaff needs to be there. Uh, um, I don't I don't like but it's that. Not just, it's not just up to him, is it? It might be another no. championship. I just think if you're looking at the... If you're in the championship, you don't have, you know, enough money to go and get a... Ellis Sims from the Premier League or whatever, surely you're looking at the top scorers in League One and Two and thinking, can we find a gem? Um, well, I'm just thinking, I, I wish. How much the cost? Yeah, I'm just thinking, I wish Eric Ten Hag said that about Anthony, for fuck's sake. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we must leave Anthony at Ajax. Um, yeah, I, I don't like that from Luke Williams, though. If, if you know, sentimental value of your time at Notts County aside, you're now a Swansea manager and in where goal scorers are rare breeds now, if Macaulay Langstaff's available and he thinks that he can play at that level. I said earlier, Swansea are in like 16th place, but they're not that far off the playoffs. Who's to say that he couldn't come in and bang the 10 to 15 goals that Joel Pirro's not getting for them now and fire them up to the table. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see that one. Another quick point on Macaulay Langstaff. The season before last, he was actually in the National League North with Gateshead. Um, and then Notts County took him. And then obviously, so he's done loads in National League North, broke the record in the National League um, Premier. And now he's the top scorer in League Two. So he can show he can make jumps up. I know it's another couple of levels again, but sometimes goal scorers are goal scorers, aren't they? We, I mean, we've said that about you in the past, Murph. I know you're nearly 32 now, but at <laughs> one point we were sort of saying we'd take you up front for Yeovil, weren't we? So I think he'd be putting my cards on the table. I think if a championship club did take him, it'd be a good signing. Yeah, and that uh, that was no view of my own. I would be nowhere near it at that level, uh, just to uh, specify. The one thing I would say is that people say striker's peak's 28 to 32. So if he's 27th in striker terms, he's still not gone into his peak. If he's done National League North, he's done National League, and he's now tearing up League Two. Could you look at someone at the top of League One who's wanting to pull away from the pack? Uh, a Portsmouth, uh, a Derby, a Peterborough, who normally quite uh, astute with their sign-ins to bring him in for a couple mil or 
one, two mil if he was available for that and maybe see if he can do it in League One then. And then if they get promoted, suddenly he's at the championship. So um, probably different avenues available to him. But at the same time, he might fancy staying at Notts County, scoring 35 goals again and getting them up to League One and then taking on League One with them. So um, probably not a bad position to be in if you're uh, Macaulay Langstaff at the minute. Move on to Yeovil, Loro. So we spoke about the uh, Derby. Well, lots of games of Derby's now. Derby win against Bath and we previewed the uh game against Taunton midweek, a pitch that struggles sometimes with weather and it's been Baltically cold at the minute, but uh, managed to get the game on and Yeovil went on and picked up another three points. They did. Um, before I talk about the game, I'll just say, look, I like Taunton as a place. Wonderful town to go watch cricket in. Um, Somerset, winners of the Big Bash last year, Blackbird Isle Abbey and all that sort of stuff. But to watch football there, it is diabolical. Their stadium is the worst one I've been to this season. And I've been to nearly every single National League South away game. And there's been some bad ones. Um, horrible place to go, particularly when it was minus five. I had three pasties, right? Because it was so <laughs> cold. I just At one point, I wanted to buy a couple of sausage rolls to put them in my shoes. And I know it's not their fault that it was so cold. But, I mean, the, another thing that annoyed me... The home end had like this massive burger village behind it where you could go to like nine or ten different like eateries and choose what you were having. The away end had the pasty boys who were serving undercooked um, pastry goods, which I mean, admittedly, I ate three of, but <laughs> that's what you decide. The game, the game was, was poor. Um, I mean, Yeovil seemed to be a different side away from home, but they do still salvage the results normally. Taunton, a, a club um, going in the wrong direction at the moment, unfortunately, financially. They're losing players left, right and centre. They brought a couple of young low knees in, um, including Zach Bell, actually, from Bristol City, who started the season at Yeovil, but wasn't good enough. And they made it difficult for us. But Frank Newball popped up, 4-4, four four, wonderful through ball from Matthew Worthington. And that was enough for us to, to win the game. And we were never, ever troubled. Joe Day didn't have to make a save hardly at the other end. So um, really good three points. Horrible evening watching football in the bitter cold at the worst stadium I've ever been to. But on we march, 13 points clear. We're not playing this weekend. We've got a little break. So I've seen on Instagram a lot of the players are off on holiday. I think Jake Winnell's in Marrakesh and um, one of the other players is over in Scandinavia or something. So probably a well-earned break. And then hopefully they can hit the ground running for Hemel Hempstead next Saturday, um, which is the reverse fixture of the opening day of the season where we actually lost up at their place. So, yeah. Um, again, we march on and hopefully we'll have the league sewn up soon. At the Glovers. All right, boys, we'll finish uh, with the Pyramid Pod treble. Um, new year, new us. This is <laughs> going to be the year of winners. Um, I'm going to kick us off here, boys, actually, because I've seen a bit of value that I really like, and you might shoot me down there, but Millwall play Middlesbrough. Oh. And Millwall are two to one at home against Middlesbrough, who are injury ravished. They've got the Carabao Cup semi-final on their minds. Lost a couple more players of injuries. They're going to be leggy from midweek as hell. And I think Millwall, 2-1 to one at home, is astonishingly good odds. And they've won their last three league games as well. Uh, so, yes, they sit 15th, but they're flying. Middlesbrough are injury-ravished and they're leggy from midweek. So, I think that's the biggest banker of the weekend. Yeah, and... Um... That's thrown me so off. So did you? Yeah, that's thrown <laughs> me off a little bit because I went Millwall when I for all the same reasons you did. But I've just I'm gonna go for Birmingham. Um they play Swansea at home, and I just think the new manager bounce. I know Swansea have got a new manager as well, but 
um, with Birmingham being at home, I think they'll beat Swansea, and it's five to four. I'm going to go Cambridge. They're at home to Fleetwood. I don't know what Fleetwood are doing this season, but they're already on their third manager, and that third manager is Charlie Adam, who, um, how can I put this? I think it's flattered to deceive in a lot of the footballing things that he's done since leaving Blackpool. Um, the Liverpool transfer and everything else ever since. So I'm not sure how that's going to go down and I'm certainly not sure he's the right man to lead a team off the foot of the table with half a season left to go. So I think it's going to be a really tricky uh, task for them going to Cambridge and getting anything. I fancy a 3 to win there. So over-evens, 23-20, to 20, I think they're a good price. Good stuff. So just to confirm, guys, that's Birmingham uh, to beat Swansea at home, Millwall to beat Middlesbrough at home and Cambridge to beat Fleetwood at home. So uh, on Skybet, that's 13 and a half to one. So £10 state returns £145. Obviously, other bookmakers available might get better odds elsewhere, but that's our bookies of choice. Uh, yeah, let's get the new year off to a flying start with the treble, start earning back some of those losses and start to get into the profit. But boys, pleasure as always. We'll be back on Monday where we'll review all of that weekend action and celebrate the first winning Pyramid Pod treble. Cheers, boys. Thank you. One, two, three.